Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 235. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King. Lord, this is a, a very special time that we're right in the middle of. We are in the midst of the fall festivals. We've just completed, as the time of this recording, uh, Yom Truah, the day of the awakening trumpet blast, but it's marked on our secular calendars as Yom as um, uh, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the new year. And so we have already been uh, introduced to this idea, Lord, that you are sounding the alarm, the wake-up call, the um, the clarion blast to, to wake us out of our spiritual slumber. And so we pray, Lord, that you will give us the mercy and the grace to listen to your voice, to hear the call, and to respond, because the King is approaching. The King is coming. And we want to herald his return. And yet, we can't do so if we're spiritually asleep. So, help us, Lord, to be awake and to walk circumspectly and to um, be prepared to meet you as you return. Thank you for these uh, special times that you've marked out on your calendar and then you've invited us to join you uh, during these special times. Because as we're going to find out tonight, these are are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption they speak of the work of messiah and if we would just pay attention more closely as your people then we would not miss the signs we would we would be aware of the events that they are foretelling and so now as at the time of this recording uh probably yom kippur has already passed us as well and we are now heading into sukkot and so thank you lord for the um joy that is brought on as we participate in your special holidays and again uh, forgive us where we fail to understand the deeper significance of these special days but draw us close to you uh with with a heart of repentance and a, and a heart of joy as we uh, welcome the king and as we celebrate our lord and messiah yeshua Thank you for the times that we're able to spend together as um, as an internet community, as local congregations meeting together, as um, individuals meeting in our homes and our respective places around the world. Continue to protect us, to raise us up, to provide for us, and to give us a supernatural hope as we wait for the second return of our Lord Yeshua someday to planet Earth. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, everyone, thank you for tuning in for this live internet study, episode number 235. My name is Arvind Lyman Hanavi. As you can see on my screen, normally what we would be engaged in would be the uh, eschatology study, a biblical, uh, the um, eschatology, a biblical study of end time events. But as I already mentioned two weeks ago, before we took our break for um, for Rosh Hashanah, we're going to do a special study tonight. I've got no name. I don't. I don't have any name for the study. It's just basically going to be talking about the uh, Jewish feasts um, of the you know the the, the uh, fall feasts. Uh, that are on the calendar. We, I say Jewish, but really they're God's feasts. But he loaned them out to the Jewish people to Israel. But the, the fall feasts and their significance for end time events, particularly the significance of how the end times, um, the um, fall feasts and the end times kind of um, overlap with one another or parallel, meaning it's really no secret and Every Bible student should be aware of it, although it's a shame that many aren't, that the festivals that are mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23, they outline the 
kind of the roadmap of Messiah Yeshua's um, comings here on planet Earth. The two major comings, the first coming when he was born uh, in Bethlehem as a baby, came into the world through his um, earthly parents, and then... Um, walked and talked and uh, uh you know performed all of his ministry here on planet earth that was all the first coming and then his death on the cross his burial his resurrection and his ascension all are detailed and paralleled and outlined and and and, and demonstrated by the first four feasts in Leviticus chapter 23. So there's a one-to-one -one correspondence, and I'll put a little graphic on the screen in post-production that shows this. Um, but every Christian should be aware of this, right? Jesus is the Passover lamb. He was the unleavened bread that was that was put into the earth, um, the, the bread without sin. He was the first fruit that was raised from the dead, right? The resurrection of those who would never die again once they've been resurrected he was the first one to experience that and then he ascended on high to sit at the right hand of the father and then when he um sent his holy spirit i.e the holy spirit of god was uh sent at 50 days uh, later on shavuot at pentecost well then that um closed out the fall feasts as it were i'm sorry the uh, the spring feasts so those are there's, there's a correspondence there that i think most people are aware of but some people just don't um uh, put more special emphasis on it. To be sure, Israel's still in the dark. They haven't figured it out, right? Rabbinic Judaism has blinded the minds of, of Jewish people the world over into thinking that these are just all kind of agricultural feasts and they're special to Israel, but they're not really special to anyone else or really don't bear any real significance when it turn, when it comes to pointing out who Messiah is and what he's going to be doing and when. But now we've got the fall feasts, right? And we're right in the middle of these fall feasts. And yet the themes are still there. The messianic themes of, of Yeshua uh, returning to his people, uh, um, pouring out national atonement for national Israel, right, at Yom Kippur, and then um, drawing all the world into one giant Sukkot celebration where um, we uh, 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 celebrate together and, and usher in the, uh, the the Millennial Kingdom and things like that. So that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So without further ado, what I want to do is I, I want to borrow two main resources. The first resource is my own. It's uh, from my own study. Uh, I'm just turned to it here. On my own website, um, uh, let's see. It is the it's from you can see on my screen. It's from the Holy Convocation series, and I've got videos available. The Feast of Adonai, dress rehearsals of Messianic Tradition. I, I I recommend that you watch that video. You can go straight to my website at uh, www and then click on the Holy Convocations link at the top of the screen. Or if the pop up shows up because it, we're in the middle of fall feast, then um, follow the links for the Holy Convocations there. Um, question, should we celebrate the Jewish feasts as Christians? The answer, short answer, if you don't want to watch the video, the answer is yes. Uh, so I've got a study here. Um, it's the introduction and overview to the um, festivals. And I want to read this study, just the part one. Uh, it's only like a short half page when I wrote it in, in uh, Word format. So I'm going to read that. And then the second resource, I'm sorry, also by way of my own resources, Again, you can go to my YouTube channel at uh, youtube.com forward slash Tate Torah Ministries forward slash C 
uh, I'm sorry, a YouTube channel slash C slash Tate Tour Ministries. I believe that's the, the YouTube channel uh, URL. But, or just do a Google search for me, a YouTube search for my name, Ariel Hanavi, or Tate Tour Ministries. You'll find it that way. And I have one of my, is it one of my playlists, the Feasts of the Lord, the Mikra'e Kodesh series. You can see all the thumbnails are blue. And you can watch the festivals there. And I made audio, I'm, I'm sorry, I made video recordings of what I'm going to read, like part one. I made that. That's right there. They can see. You can watch the, the first one on the top of the screen. Let me blow it up for you. That one right there. So you can watch uh, that um, if you get a chance. There we go. You can watch that if you get a chance. I highly recommend it. And then um, the third, uh, well, the, well, the second resource that we're going to be um, looking at is, you remember I've been using this book called The Sign by Christian author Robert Van Campen, who passed away just before 2020. I'm sorry, just before 2000, so it was 1999, somewhere in 1998. But he wrote a book called The Sign of Christ's Coming and the End of the Age. And in this book, which you can see on my screen is available from Amazon.com. In this book, he has a chapter, let me turn to it, called End Times and Three Jewish Feasts. And I've got this book um, that I'm reading from an online archive resource that I'm subscribed to. And I'm just going to read this particular excerpt from this particular chapter of his book. And so that'll finish out the study tonight. So without further ado, it's just going to be a lot of reading tonight. I won't try to elaborate. I'll resist that. This way you can get the maximized uh, amount of teaching just from hearing all the material. Because I'm not going to carry this over into next week. Next week, we're on break again. In fact, let me pull up my calendar and just uh, uh, get make you guys aware. So today is the 23rd for those of you in the West. It is the 24th for me on my side of the world over here in the East. Um... I think I got those backwards. Well, in Asia, it's, uh, it's the 24th, but in America, in the Americas, it's still the 23rd. And Yom Kippur is fast approaching. Uh, Sunday night is when Yom Kippur starts. And so, if you notice on the calendar, Sukkot will be upon us on the 30th of September. So, no study that night. And then, if you keep looking at the calendar, You'll notice that Shmini Atzeret, which is the eighth day of assembly for Sukkot, otherwise known as Simchat Torah, returning uh, the uh, joy of the Torah. Shmini Atzeret is the eighth day of assembly, and I will not hold study then as well. So no meeting on the 30th, no live study, no live study on the 7th as well. We will not return for the live study until the 14th of October. So since today is the 23rd, for most of you listening to this recording, um, and for those of you with me in the live study, um, I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, since today's the 23rd, since we are having study, um, then uh, there won't be a study two weeks following. So um, the study that I'm going to do tonight is going to have to carry over for those two weeks. Okay, so let's um, let's jump into the study. I'm just going to do a lot of heavy reading. It does it's self-explanatory, and so let's start with this quote from Luke 24. 44 from the complete jewish bible david stern's version yeshua said to them this is what i meant when i was still alive with you and told you that everything written about me in the torah of moshe the prophets and the psalms had to be fulfilled all right now let's just jump right into this commentary that i wrote some time ago I, here's what I had to say. Next to Isaiah 53, nowhere else is this statement of Yeshua's more vividly demonstrated 
than in the Holy Convocations of Leviticus chapter 23, is what I say. The opening few lines of this chapter clearly teach that the biblical feasts, including, and now I'm going to name off all the uh, the feasts, um, well, uh, an overview of the feasts, Pesach, which is Passover, to Sukkot, which is Tabernacles, meaning the, the bookmarks, right? Passover is the first and Tabernacles is the last. And I say that they are, quote-unquote, designated times of Adonai, verse 4 below, that we're going to see here. And so, God himself tells Israel, these are my feasts. Um, do I want to read that? Sure. Yeah, I'll read it this time. Um, this is uh, Leviticus. Let me scroll down and read. This is... Um, this is Leviticus 23, 1 through 4. So I've got the Hebrew up here. And then I've got the um, the, the English down below. Vayidaber Adonai el Moshe lemor. Daber el Bnei Yisrael va'amarata aleichem. Moade Adonai ashir tikro u'otam mikra e kodesh aleichem moadai. And then... Um, this next verse here. Sheshet yamim te'ase malacha uviyom hashvi'i. Shabbat Shabbaton Mikra Kodesh Ko Malacha Lota Asu Shabbat Hi Ladonai Boho Moshvotechem. And then the final Pasak verse 4, I believe. Ele Moade Adonai Mikra E Kodesh Asherer Tikra U Otam Bemoadam. And so the translation of those uh, of that uh, passage that I just read from the Hebrew, going back into English using David Stern's uh, version, verse 1, Adonai said to Moshe, verse 2, Tell the people of Israel the designated times of Adonai which you are to proclaim as holy convocations are my designated times. Again, these are feasts of the Lord. Israel is just borrowing them. So they're not Jewish feasts. Get that out of your head. Which means, if you name the name of Adonai as your Lord, then these feasts are for you too, right? They are for all who name the name of Adonai, the name of the Lord. This does include national Israel, obviously, because God spoke to them when he when these words were recorded. But they now extend to Gentiles who have been brought into the family of God via their genuine faith in Messiah Yeshua. Thus, Gentile Christians who are grafted into Israel also have full access and privilege to keeping these feasts. These are not Jewish-only feasts. They do not belong to the people of Israel only. The Torah is not a Jewish-only document. Verse 3, Moshe is told from God, work is to be done on six days, but the seventh day is a Shabbat of complete rest, a holy convocation. You are not to do any kind of work. It is a Shabbat for Adonai, even in your homes. And then verse 4, these are the designated times of Adonai, the holy convocations you are to proclaim at their designated times. Okay, so let's read this uh, commentary that I wrote. Again, this is just um, a short uh, introduction to the, fe- the, uh, the, the fall feast. Well, introduction to the feast as a whole. Here's what I had to say. Historically, the nation of Israel was to act as a repository of the wisdom and word of Hashem, with his called out ones acting as a fishbowl the surrounding nations were to learn about the creator, the one true God of the universe, from the everyday activities of the offspring of Abraham. So right away, we can see there's a kind of a um, an evangelical, uh, if you want to call it that, um, um, an outreach aspect to these um, festivals. Israel was to walk them out. The rest of the nations surrounding them were to observe and to become curious. You can go back and read Deuteronomy chapter 
four for more details on what I called the Jewish Great Commission, where God told Israel to kind of be a witness to the surrounding nations. I go on to say that this is one of the primary reasons that the Torah was graciously given to Israel in the first place. They were not to, to um, just kind of keep it to themselves and hide it and not let anyone else participate or, or um, be curious about it or be interested in the God spoken about therein. No. And unfortunately, history demonstrates that they did just that very thing. They, they, they prevented the surrounding nations from really um, participating in the fullest. They, they micromanaged what I call the immigration policy into Israel as a people group, especially when it, it kind of reached a, a, a head in the first century with all the ethnocentric Jewish exclusive baggage that was um, piled on top of the written Torah and the proselyte conversion ceremony that was required by Gentiles if they wished to become full-fledged covenant members in, in Israel, which Paul um, uh, violently protested against, right? Go back and read the book of uh, Galatians and mine through that, or better yet, or in addition to that, I should send better yet, um, read the book of Galatians and then go back and read my uh, commentary or listen to the podcast, which is available on my website at tatesatora.com as well as my YouTube channel, right? Exegeting Galatians. All right, so I go on to say that in both biblical and modern Hebrew, the word for appointment is moed. And we read about that above in the quote from the Hebrew. So M-O-E-Y-D, moed. Then this is translated as designated times in Stern's translation above that I also read. So um, this is something that many people probably aren't aware of unless you go back and study the Hebrew. Interestingly, I go on to say, the root of the related word mikra, translated as convocations by Stern, is kara. And this root word, in my research, conveys a sense of rehearsals. And I got some footnotes in my um, study here that I'm not going to look up, but they're pointing to probably the BDB or um, some lexicon or, or something like that. I go on to say that, in my, in my opinion, I like to think that in this way, Hashem masterfully designed the Mikra E Kodesh, that is the Holy Convocations, to act as sort of dress rehearsals for His children. Now, of what? You might ask, right? Naturally, you should be asking. And then, here's my answer. The Feasts of Adonai are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. Let me pause and let that sink in. The feasts of Adonai are dress rehearsals of messianic redemption. Using this theme of, of a play and a dress rehearsal, it should become obvious how important the dress rehearsals are in relationship to the actual play. So if you think about the feasts, when Yeshua walked the earth, he was the play. He was not the dress rehearsal. He was the actual performance. He was the real deal. And yet, God gave the feast to Israel, you know, over a thousand years prior to Yeshua hitting the scene. So what should Israel have been doing all that time before their Messiah showed up? They should have been practicing the dress rehearsals so that when the time came for the actual performance, they would know their parts. They would know the cues. They would be able to see and understand who the genuine article was, right? And sadly, they missed it. Let's keep reading my commentary. Our Lord Yeshua 
has literally and prophetically fulfilled the first four of the seven feasts mentioned in Leviticus chapter 23. It is my belief that the Torah teaches that he will likewise literally and prophetically fulfill the final three at his soon-to-be second arrival. And so we're going to turn to uh, Robert Van Campen's notes and sign to see how that there can be some perhaps correlation between the fall festivals and the return of our Lord Yeshua. I go on to say, as the children of Abraham willingly and faithfully lived out Hashem's yearly cycle of Moedim, the Spirit of the Holy One graciously opened their hearts to understand and listen very carefully. God had his part. Even though Israel failed miserably at being the light to the nations that she was called out to be, God's word didn't fail. God's Holy Spirit was still on the move, still active in the hearts of people. And so by the time we get to the first century, what should have taken place in the midst of Israel instead began to blossom in the hearts of Gentile Christians who were being drawn into this family of God by the power of the Ruach Kodesh, the Holy Spirit, particularly at Shavuot, at Pentecost, when the message was preached. The Jewish people heard it, they responded, you know, a good number of them did, but the leaders rejected Jesus. But when Paul was finally commissioned, he took this message to the Gentiles and they received it with open arms. So um, I go on to say that the Holy Spirit graciously um, would open their hearts to understand that speaking of Israel and now including the Gentile nations, as his treasured possession, they were responsible to actively pursue a genuine, personal, loving relationship with their heavenly Abba, right? Israel is responsible. She's culpable. She's not guilt-free. She stands guilty of rejecting her Messiah, Yeshua. And she'll stand and have to answer for that one day. But thank God that the Gentiles in mass did listen and this gospel message of Yeshua, that he can and will save anyone who calls on the name of the Lord for salvation. This message has gone around the world. And now today, um, millions and billions of people have heard this message um, of the good news of Messiah Yeshua. But we should continue to pray for Israel, who's still in blindness, right? What does the uh, the popular psalm um, say? Uh, pray for the peace of Israel. They shall prosper who love thee, right? We need to pray for Israel because she's still largely in blindness, but... The Holy Spirit's still at work. And as we're going to find out, in the fall feast, God is finally going to break Israel's stubbornness and bring her to her knees. So let's keep reading here. I go on to say that it is this type of personal relationship that Hashem has always desired from the nation of Israel. And through the grace poured out to Israel, the surrounding Gentile nations uh, might also see the goodness and mercy of Adonai, right? As they uh, see Israel walking this out, they should have um, uh, seen and understand. And of course, in the days of the Tanakh, it was very difficult with Israel hiding the Torah from the nations, only letting small amounts of Gentiles join her, right? A, a few here and a few there through the conversion policies. But the Holy Spirit broke through all of that um, at, at Acts chapter 2 with uh, Pentecost and just sent it out like an exploding bomb to the surrounding nations. But I go on to uh, say that um, after um, 
the, the surrounding nations see the goodness and mercy of Hashem, then they would seek to become one of his treasured possessions as well. And that's exactly what happened at Acts chapter 2. So go back and read Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 8 to see the references that I was making there to what I called the Jewish Great Commission in the Old Testament. And then closing out this portion of my study from this quote from my uh, um, uh, Holy Convocation study, I go on to say that today... Our covenant responsibilities to our holy God have not changed any more than the covenants made with his treasured people have changed, right? God has an expectation. God has a plan. God has a a task for us to fulfill. He is our God and we are his people, right? Nothing has changed. Let me continue. History has demonstrated that in the fullness of Hashem's timetable. He sent his only begotten son, Yeshua, into the world to redeem fallen man and to make it possible, I say, to have a right relationship with our heavenly Abba. Right? This is so important, so please listen up. This messianic redemption of ours, which was accomplished through the sacrificial death burial, and miraculous resurrection of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, has been prophetically and historically displayed through the teachings of the Holy Convocations of Leviticus chapter 23. Are you catching what I'm saying here? Right? We've been ignoring the Old Testament for too lo- for far too long as the church. We thought it's old, it's, rele- it's relegated to a bygone era, it's for Jews only, it's been fulfilled in Christ, it's been done away with, right? The law is done away with, no, we're, we're no longer under law, we're under the grace, etc., etc. But we could stand to benefit as we go back and study the Old Testament, particularly just for tonight, I'm just highlighting Leviticus chapter 23. So I go on to say, it is therefore Hashem's desire that these teachings become an integral part of our everyday lives as we walk out the truths of our new identification in Messiah, right? We are no longer sinners. In fact, the Bible says that we are the righteousness of God in Messiah, right? That's what the New Testament tells us. We are no longer condemned sinners, right? Hallelujah to that. So I go on to say that to be sure, the Torah has demonstrated, and I'll I'll close with this quote from the New Testament. Speaking of Yeshua's work, then he opened their minds so that they could so that they could understand the Tanakh, right? Luke 24, 45. And so that's uh, the introduction and overview part one. We'll stop there uh, with that quote from the book of Luke. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi, I'm a torture congregation, Kayla Tunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at graftina.com and join us in in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site 
essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies. Um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Okay, so let's read Robert Van Campen's quote from his book. This is um, an excerpt from the book, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, the book's called The Sign, and it's available everywhere that uh, Christian books are sold, as well as Amazon.com. And we're going to be reading, uh, starting on page 468, uh, with the paragraph heading entitled, End Times and Three Jewish Feasts. And uh, again, let me see, can I highlight those? No. I'm just going to read, I'll try to, I'll try to resist uh, pausing and commenting, okay? You guys ready? Here we go. While preparing material for this book, Robert Van Campen acknowledges that he often consulted with a young friend of his who is a very fine Old Testament and Hebrew scholar and a devoted student of prophecy. He writes extensively in an evangelical magazine published by an organization whose primary goals are to bring unbelieving Jews to a saving knowledge of their Messiah, Jesus Christ, and to help prepare Christians for the second coming of Christ. In a series of articles concerning Jewish feasts, this young man became more and more convinced that certain events associated with Christ's second coming will occur in precise relation to certain Jewish feasts, just as his crucifixion occurred in precise relation to the Passover feast when he came the first time as the Lamb of God. Robert Van Campen continues, as he carefully studied the work outlined in this volume, in, particularly, uh, in particular Christ's earthly return for the salvation of Israel, first to Edom, then from Edom to Jerusalem, and finally to the top of Mount Zion with the first fruits of Israel, where the reign over the earth will be reclaimed by God Almighty. The relationship of those events to Yom Kippur, the Feast of Tabernacles, and Hanukkah became overwhelmingly clear in his mind. It did not take him long to convince me, Robert Van Campen says, that they, those remarkable relationships should be mentioned in this book. He continues, some of the similarities were... Um, discussed briefly in chapter 19, but the purpose of this epilogue is to consider them in more detail. All right, so let's look at this epilogue, and we've already passed the festival of trumpets or the uh, feast of known as uh, Rosh Hashanah on a calendar. Many Christians believe that Christ could return at the sounding of the trumpet since there's 
mention of the trumpets in um, there's mention of the last trump in Paul's writings to the Thessalonians and then um, the book of Revelation also talks about trumpets in a certain order and so many Christians have long held a belief that perhaps the rapture or the second coming could be triggered or um, could fall on the Feast of Trumpets. There were a lot of Christians even building up some um, expectation that it could happen this year, 2023. But of course, that's date setting in some regards and it, it didn't happen right here we are uh, past the feeds of trumpets and yeshua hasn't returned yet right i'm, I'm still here in asia and i'm not i haven't received my resurrected body so this is proof i know for sure that yeshua didn't return and yet that doesn't mean he cannot return on some feast of trumpets someday some year right we don't have the date set but we can have this expectation because our lord yeshua himself told us even though we can't know the day or the hour we can in fact know the season so let's let's look at um yom kippur and talk about this season of repentance i mean he still could come back on sunday night at least that's what date it is for yom kippur my side of the world but he still could come back on Yom Kippur or on Sukkot or on Hanukkah. But let's let Robert Van Kampen talk about the relevance of the second coming of Yeshua in relationship to these fall feasts. Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, which means Day of Atonement, and occurs on the 10th day of the Jewish month of Tishri, which corresponds to our September to October on our Gregorian calendar. It's the 7th month in the Jewish calendar, right, Tishri. It was... Uh, uh, it has the Supreme Jewish Holy Day. I'm sorry, it was the Supreme Jewish Holy Day, the time of national atonement for sin. Originally, it was the time when once a year the high priest and the high priest alone very briefly entered the Holy of Holies with the blood of the sin offering for himself and for Israel. And he makes a reference to Leviticus 16, as well as 20, uh, 23, 27-32. And then he has a quote from Leviticus 16. On that day, quote, the high priest shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering which is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat per leviticus 16 15 uh van campen continues during this holy period fasting was mandatory from the evening of the ninth day through the evening of the tenth God declared that, quote, it is on this day that atonement shall be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean from all your sins before the Lord, end quote. That's Leviticus 16.30. On this day, Van Campen reminds us, the slaughtered goat was a symbolic offering for the true sacrifice or sin that Jesus Christ made once for all when he offered up himself, right? Read Hebrews 7.27. When God, quote, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There's that quote that I referenced earlier, um, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Speaking of the end times, Van Campen says, and the end of Israel's sins, the angel, of Ga the angel Gabriel declares to Daniel, and now we have this quote from Daniel 9.24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, listen to this phrase, to make atonement for iniquity, did you catch that part? To bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. And Bob Van Campen, uh, Robert Van Campen, uh, 
uh, added the emphasis here. He continues, If any day of the end times could prophetically represent the day of atonement for Israel, it would be the last day of the 70th week when, as the book of Daniel reveals, her transgression will be finished, her sins ended, and her iniquity atoned for. This, then, would be the day that God's hostility against her will end because she will have made, quote, amends for her iniquity, and quote, Leviticus 26.41. Robert Van Campen remarks, It seems perfectly consistent with Scripture that certain events associated with Christ's second coming will therefore correspond to and fulfill Yom Kippur just as his crucifixion climaxing his first coming corresponded to and fulfilled the Passover. This conclusion does not set the date for Christ's return. No man knows the day or the hour, but... He goes on to say, it does reveal the timing of the end of the 70th week in relation to Yom Kippur. So, he's catching what he's implying there. No, we can't know the day or the hour exactly when Yeshua is going to return. But, because we can know the season, then we will be prepared to some degree when our Lord returns to meet us in the air during that resurrection day. And then, as the events of the 70th week unfold with the pouring out of the day of the Lord's wrath upon wicked humanity or upon rebellious humanity who's following after the Antichrist, etc., etc., and then as the events um, build to a momentum of Antichrist mounting his armies to resist Yeshua, um, and to destroy Jerusalem at uh, Armageddon, during the Battle of Armageddon, as the 70th week draws to a close, then we've got Yeshua riding back to earth on a white horse with us following behind him, right? Uh, the uh, you know Heaven's armies following with them to defeat Antichrist and the false prophet and cast them alive into the lake of fire and to establish his um, physical uh, millennial kingdom here on earth. Well, um, this is what Robert Van Campen is alluding to. He, he goes on to say that if that conclusion is correct about the timing of Yom Kippur and the end of the 70th week, etc., etc., the end of the 70th week and therefore Yom Kippur should occur 2,520 days, that is, seven prophetic years or of 360 days each, from the date that Israel signs the covenant with death at the beginning of that final week. And he references you back to chapter 10 of... Um, of uh, his uh, book here. And so, let me just, uh, I didn't have this pulled up earlier, but let me show you the uh, kind of a, a map of um, the 70th week as uh, Robert Van Campen's kind of um, describing it. Let's see, let's open up this one. So, we've got this map of the end times, a visual overview. And we can see that um, as I blow it up, as in this part of the um, of the map, we've got the covenant that's made at the far left of your screen with the beginning of sorrows and this covenant that's made between Antichrist and Israel. Of course, he's Antichrist incognito, right? They don't know he's Antichrist. They just know he's some powerful world leader who has the clout and um, influence and resource to be able to um, set up Middle e peace in the Middle East, something that no other leader really has been ever to establish. But he's going to do it, creating some form of temporary peace really between israel and her surrounding muslim and and uh hostile neighbors and so this covenant is made at the beginning of the seventh week but then we've got this little arrow where the covenant is broken with the abomination of desolation at the middle of the week which we're going to talk about when we return from the break 
right? The uh, abomination of desolation. Um, that occurs at the middle of the week, which is three and a half years into the seven-year covenant. And then according to Robert Van Kampen's timing, we've got the great tribulation that kicks off after the middle midpoint of the week with um, the abomination of desolation and then the, the great martyrdom of Jews and Christians, Satan's wrath being poured out on planet Earth. And then that is interrupted by the pre-wrath rapture with that little arrow pointing up towards the blue part that says pre-wrath rapture, kind of teal colored there. And then notice as we keep reading, following this chart from left to right, God's wrath is poured out in the day of the Lord against the wicked of humanity, which is then uh, finalized by the second coming. So you see that arrow there where it says second coming. That's what we're talking about, the time period about um, the uh, separation or the end of this age and the ushering and of the age to come is the second coming of Messiah, the physical return to planet Earth where his feet touch the Mount of Olives, etc., etc., and um, or something around that time frame. And uh, the uh, uh, Yom Kippur that Robert Van Campen is, is uh, indicating should be around that time, right? Armageddon, Satan bound, and then the millennium takes place. We've got a thousand years where we rule and reign with Messiah here on planet Earth. And then after the thousand years, Satan is loosed. There's the great white throne judgment, which is the second resurrection. The first resurrection being the rapture itself. A thousand years earlier the second resurrection is of the wicked and those who are going to be judged and sent off into eternally uh, uh, eternal damnation uh, uh, separated away from God and then we have the eternal state being ushered in with the new heaven the new earth and the lake of fire um, all being destroyed and things like that so that's kind of what Robert Van Campen is uh, alluding to so he talks about the um, uh, 2,560 days. So we're not date setting, but to the degree that the Bible does give us the exact time of seven prophetic years of 360 days each, and Daniel's also told uh, that there will be 2,560 days from a certain point to a certain point, etc., etc., then it makes sense that once Yeshua has returned, that we can begin to look at a calendar and go, ah, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, and we're not date-setting his return, i.e. his rapture, the day that no man can know or know the day or the hour, but we can know certain events that are uh, that would correspond to um, the ushering in of this eternal righteousness and things like that. He goes on to say, that evidence alone, however, is not sufficient in my mind to make one adamant about making Yom Kippur fall on the last day of the 70th week. But it was a reasonable possibility and with additional research would either appear more likely or more improbable. So let's turn now to Sukkot. He goes on to talk about uh, Sukkot in this way. Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, always begins five days after Yom Kippur, right? And so just watch your calendar for um, when Sukkot falls uh, this year. So it shows up on the 15th day of Tishri and is one of the three feasts that was required to be observed on Mount Zion, originally lasting for seven days. This festival celebrated two events. First, it was a remembrance of God's protection of a surviving remnant of Israel during the 40 years of wilderness wandering after he delivered his people from Egypt. The name of the feast is derived from the fact that it was celebrated in simple tabernacles or booths. So the um, single word there in the Hebrew would be sukkah, 
right? So a sukkah is a booth or a tabernacle, like a little shelter for animals. Usually it's open on, on, on one side, but closed off on, on five sides. So it's got one, two, three, I'm sorry, closed off on four sides. And then one side is open as it's sitting there on the ground. So um, Yeshua himself came into the world in a sukkah, a little manger, right? A, a little temporary shelter for animals. So the name of the feast is derived from the fact that Israel celebrated uh, in simple tabernacles or boots and was meant to remind God's people of his faithfulness, deliverance, protection, and provision during those nomadic years of hardship. Second, Robert Van Campen reminds us, Sukkot celebrated the end of the harvest as the people gathered and stored the grain and other produce God had provided for them. For that reason, it was often called the Feast of Ingathering. Although the figure of harvest is frequently used in scripture of God's judgment, he reminds us that it's also used of his blessing, particularly in relation to the salvation of the nation after they have atoned for their sin, right? Which is why it shows up after Yom Kippur, which is the National Day of Atonement. He continues, through Hosea, God gave his people the clearly eschatological promise, quote, here's a quote from Hosea 6.11, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people, end quote. Just as noted, Robert Van Campen says, Sukkot refers, uh, occurs five days after Yom Kippur. It represents the dual celebrations of God's deliverance of Israel from their affliction in Egypt and of his provision of the harvest, which is a near-term, physical, far-term, far-term spiritual. Remember, we talked about this prophetic telescoping concept where there's one prophecy, and yet there are two uses, uses of the prophecy, one in near-term kind of um, what we might call... Uh, incomplete fashion or partial fulfillment, and then a far-term spiritual or final complete um, fulfillment of the prophecy. So near-term physical often, uh, like historical, and then far-term spiritual. And this, uh, Robert Van Campus says, is celebrated on Mount Zion, this particular festival. It is surely more than coincidental, he says, that those three central aspects of Sukkot perfectly parallel the events of the fifth day after the end of the 70th week when Christ will ascend Mount Zion after the salvation of the of the remnant of Israel that survives the horrors of Antichrist's great tribulation. So we're reading from this epilogue in Robert Van Kamen's book called The Sign, which is, as I mentioned earlier, is available in, in, among other places from Amazon.com. As you can see, um, the price is quite reasonable, $46 for a used copy if you're into buying used books. So um, pick up the book, right? There's a little plug for the book. I've got it sitting here on my on my desk right next to me here. So we're reading from this um, excerpt from this particular book in the epilogue. We're talking about the three, um, uh, the, uh, the final festivals. We're, we're skipping over Rosh Hashanah. We're jumping straight to Yom Kippur, Sukkot, and then to the next one on the uh, Jewish calendar, which is not mentioned in the Bible, i.e. in Leviticus 23, but it's the festival of Hanukkah. And so we're looking at the parallels between this and the um, second coming of Messiah, etc., etc. Robert Van Campen continues, Of additional fascination to me, he says, was the discovery that Psalm 118, 
the psalm I had already concluded will, will most likely be the psalm sung when Christ and the 144,000 ascend Mount Zion together on the fifth day after the conclusion of the 70th week is the great psalm of ascension always sung on Sukkot, right, by national Israel these days, five days after Yom Kippur. Uh, Yom Kippur. And so it was sung, of course, in ancient biblical times. I don't know that it's sung in, in synagogues these days, but at least we are aware of its historical significance. So let's kind of run with that. Psalm 118 was specifically sung by Jews in the celebration of Sukkot as they traveled to the top of Mount Zion. Hence, its designation as a psalm of ascent or ascension. And so when you read in your Bible these days, you turn to Psalm 118, it says a psalm of ascent. So um, although the feast... This feast was associated with Israel's wilderness deliverance and with the ingathering of the harvest. Psalm 118 itself does not directly focus on these two things. The first four verses express general adoration and praise for the Lord's eternal loving kindness. The first four verses express general adoration and praise for the Lord's eternal loving kindness. The next five, that is five through nine, acknowledge him as the only true place of safety in times of distress, which could refer equally well to Israel's wilderness sojourn as to the second half of the 70th week, or more probably to both occasions. So you have to remember uh, from that um, uh, map that I was looking at earlier, when we look at the um, seventh week of Daniel, right there when the covenant is broken at the abomination of desolation and Satan's wrath is poured out at the midpoint of the seventh week, <clears throat> then um, Yeshua himself warned those in Israel to flee, right? Get out of Jerusalem, flee into the desert. Um, and this corresponds with uh, Revelation chapter 12, where after Satan's wrath is poured out, the woman Israel flees into the desert where she has a place prepared for her for the final second half of the week. So that seems to make sense. <clears throat> so Van Camping continues. I apologize. I got something in my, uh, I had a tickle in my throat here. And so that's why I keep clearing my throat. Um, Van Camping continues in verses uh, 10 through 14 of Psalm 1. Um, He's talking about uh, Psalm uh, 118 here. In, in verses uh, four, 10 through 14, praise the Lord for his... Verses 10 through 14, praise the Lord for his deliverance from her enemies, which obviously could relate to their deliverance from the persecution at the hands of Antichrist and his 10-nation 8th beast empire, which may or may not be Islam, right? We talked about that in a previous study. Go back and watch my uh, YouTube videos there. The next four verses, that is 15 through 18 of Psalm 118, give thanks for his severe but loving, loving discipline of his people, Israel. Again, paralleling the day of the Lord, refinement of Israel, when he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold uh, and silver so that they may present uh, to the Lord offerings in righteousness. That's Malachi 3.3. 3. It is, however, Robert Van Campen says, the, the next six verses that seem to be of special importance in relation to the last half of the 70th week. So that's what we're kind of zeroing in on. We're talking about parallels to the second coming of Christ. <clears throat> so let's read this uh, quote from the psalm once again. 
Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. I shall give thanks to thee, for thou hast answered me, and thou hast become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Many of those words have been put to music or they're very very familiar to us as christians um <clears throat> but those are taken from the the book of psalms for specifically uh, uh psalm 118 uh, uh, verses 19 through 24 so we're talking about this psalm right psalm 118 and its relevance to the end times particularly like Sukkot. The passage does not relate uh Robert Van Kampen says to the physical deliverance of the nation of Israel, but clearly pertains to her spiritual salvation when, quote-unquote, the stone which the builders, that is Israel, rejected, has become the chief quarter stone, which of course is Christ. And I think every Christian would agree with that. Even though Israel doesn't know it, it doesn't change the truth of the verse and the importance of the eschatological um, scope of the passage. Uh, Robert Van Kampen goes on to say that it is the cornerstone about whom Paul speaks when he assures believers, quote, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And we know that those words from the Psalm 118 were, in fact, pulled into the New Testament in significance by the Apostle Paul. So let's keep reading. And that's a quote uh, from Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. Van Campen continues, When Christ ascends Mount Zion, the firstfruits who accompany him will be the redeemed remnant of Israel, singing as never before that magnificent psalm. Thus, when that final Sukkot is celebrated, Psalm 118 will be sung as a song of thanksgiving to God for his protection during the last half of the 70th week. A song of gratitude to God for his deliverance from Israel's enemies during the Great Tribulation. A song of thanksgiving for his severe but loving discipline during the day of the Lord. And a song of praise to God for his successful harvest, salvation that is, of the nation, right, verse 19 to 24, by her Savior and King, the chief cornerstone, which of course is Yeshua, of verse 22. Van Campen continues, This is the glorious day that the Lord promised through Hosea, quote, O Judah, there is a harvest appointed for you when I restore the fortunes of my people, right? Quote, unquote, Hosea 6.11, like we referenced earlier. And Van Campen continues, As the parallels continued to mount, I began to wonder if it indeed were possible to make a biblically defensible case that these particular end-time events will be specifically fulfilled on the very days of the actual celebrations of these festivals. We're talking about Sukkot and then um, Yom, I'm sorry, uh, we're talking about Yom Kippur and then Sukkot and then um, eventually Hanukkah. And he left out Rosh Hashanah because he doesn't want to sound like a date setter. I think that's really what's going on. But perhaps um, Yeshua had, by this point, point in time, returned on Rosh Hashanah or Yom Truah, the day of the waking trumpet blast. Who knows? I'm not setting a date. I'm not saying he definitely will return on some future Rosh Hashanah slash Yom uh, Truah. But he could. 
right? I mean, it's consistent with his uh, pattern of uh, of his first coming, right? Fulfilling the spring feasts on the exact same days and pouring out the Holy Spirit on, on the exact day of Shavuot, right? I mean, that, that happened the first time, so there's every reason for us to draw some uh, inferences from that and believe that, yeah, he could show up uh, on the exact days of the fall feast. So, you know, we don't have to be, we don't have to shy away from that. But at the same time, we, we can't be 100% certain because Yeshua himself said, you know, I don't know, only Papa knows. So, now let's keep reading about this uh, parallel with the uh, fall festivals. Uh, using a feast that's not listed in Leviticus 23, but still bears significance to the people of Israel, particularly historically as they've dealt with their enemies and um, a liberation from their enemies and celebrations afterwards. So let's talk about Hanukkah or Hanukkah, if you can pronounce the Hebrew. So Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights, also called the Feast of the Dedication, is observed in the month of Kislev, which corresponds on our Gregorian calendar with the months of November and December. Exactly 75 days after Yom Kippur and 70 days after the beginning of Sukkot. Hanukkah is not a biblically prescribed feast, but it is perfectly consistent with Scripture, has clear prophetic implications, and has been celebrated by Israel for well over 2,000 years. In fact, in the book of John, Yeshua is seen showing up on the scene to have a discussion and an argument with the religious leaders, and it happened to be during Hanukkah, and John records that for us. We might even read about that in, in uh, Van Campen's notes here. Through the burning of candles representing uh, the return of the glory of God to their holy temple, this feast celebrates an event that occurred in the 2nd century BC, nearly 300 years after the last book of the Old Testament was written, and almost 200 years before the writing of the first New Testament book. Perhaps for that reason, it is not mentioned in Scripture. It was, however, an essential element in the religious life of Jews in the time of Christ, right? See John 10, 22, like I referenced earlier. Christ himself referred to this important feast when he told the scribes and Pharisees in the context of the Feast of Lights, which is Hanukkah, that he was, quote, the light of the world, end quote, right? John 8, 22, or 8, 12. The feast is still of great significance to Jews today. Hanukkah commemorates Israel's deliverance from Antiochus Epiphanes, right? We talked about this Old Testament type of Antichrist in previous studies where Yeshua reminded us that when you see the abomination of desolation, and that directly corresponds with the abomination that took place in, um, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes. So, when you see this deliverance, from Antiochus Epiphanes by Judas Maccabeus, including the restoration of the temple. This is the one that Hanukkah commemorates, right, the historical um, occasion. It includes the restoration of the temple and the purification of the altar, which had been profaned by, by Antiochus when he committed the first abomination of desolation by sacrificing swine flesh on it. The celebration of lights is directly associated with Hanukkah, and the light that comes from the burning candles is a reminder to Israel of the eventual return of God's Shekhinah, uh, his Shekhinah is what most Christians would say, his Shekhinah glory to the temple. Ultimately, it looks forward to the day that the Messiah himself will rebuild his temple, which will never, which never will be destroyed, and to the return of his Shekhinah glory that never again will depart. And so, um, 
Let's read a quote from the book of Ezekiel about this returning glory of God to the temple of God. Ezekiel was privileged to envision that return of God's glory to the temple. We have this quote from uh, chapter 43. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And he said to me, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their idolatry, by, I'm sorry, by their harlotry, and by the corpses of their kings when they die. Ezekiel 43, 2, 4, and 7. So we know this is a future-facing prophecy, because when, when the Lord said, when Yahweh said, um, uh, and the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, well, as of this current teaching in 2023 israel has been profaning the name of god through their idolatrous practices that they do in israel day through their rejection of yeshua as their one and only true messiah through their acceptance of uh, false religions and um, alternate religions that are rampant in israel through the blatant um, disobedience to god's commandments um, and the um, secularizing of many of the um, places in israel and around jerusalem particularly like tel aviv which is a you know um very very secular city so israel as a people is still profaning god's name and yet god says when this glory returns to the temple that his his holy name will never again be defiled so this must be referring to a future event that hasn't taken place yet plus he talks about the place of his throne, the place where the soles of his feet, right? God doesn't have feet. So the only way for his his, uh, feet to occupy this location, I understand it's kind of metaphorical and symbolic, but we could consider that since Yeshua is very God-veiled in flesh, then Yeshua's feet uh, could fill in for this particular part of that prophecy. And so let's keep reading. We're getting close to our conclusion of our normal um, time frame of the hour and a half that it would normally allot for this uh, second for this part, first part of our study, but I'm just going to keep going um, until I finish this particular uh, uh, epilogue for from Robert Van Campen, and then there won't be a second part anyway, so that should be fine. Robert Van Campen continues, In our study together, we've already shown that Christ's glory will first return above the earth, announcing the coming of the Son of Man and his destruction of the earth's wicked, and will then come to reside permanently in the temple, i.e. the place of my throne, where I will dwell among the sons of Israel together uh, forever, end quote. He goes on to talk about how this is the grand and ultimate scene that Hanukkah depicts, the scene that will be fulfilled when Christ returns to Jerusalem to rule on the first day of the millennium when, quote, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And we... we um. We religious Jews take this quote from Zechariah 14.9 and we, we include it as part of our liturgy um, uh, in our prayer services and it's been put to music as well. Um, uh, where I, I'm trying to recall it from memory. Um, Bayom hahu, Bayom hahu, Yeye Adonai Echad Ushimo, Ushimo, Ushimo Echad. Right. So Bayom hahu, um, the, the Lord will be uh, the only one, and on that day, His name, the only one, Ushimo Echad. So um, 
rubber band camping continues as envisioned by john the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it for the glory of god has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb quote from revelation 21 23 this glorious event will occur exactly 75 days after the completion of the 70th week and exactly 70 days after christ ascends to the top of mount zion accompanied by the first fruits of israel now let me just interject for a moment because i know some people watching this video listening to this podcast are going to cry foul how can you robert van campen set exact dates for certain biblical events when the bible tells us don't set dates right it tells us not to be date setters we don't know the exact day we don't know the exact hour etc etc ah here's how it's because that saying where we don't know the exact day or the hour in its most natural association applies to the second coming of Yeshua at the rapture. It does not say that we will not know the date of other events that fall during a seventh week. To be sure, according to Daniel's timeline already, he gave us exact time frames of like three and a half years into the 70th week, 42 months, 70, uh, 1260 days, and then Daniel talks about blessed is who comes to the 2500 uh, 3045 or something like that i'm i'm getting the uh, the exact number wrong but the point i'm simply trying to uh, uh, highlight is that yes daniel didn't give us an exact day of the rapture and so that corresponds with yeshua saying hey um, no one knows the day or the hour but as far as all the other events when the seventh week kicks off and we know probably in hindsight once it does take place that it is the seventh week we can begin setting our clock and counting down the days using prophetic years of 360 days each to the midpoint of the 70th week and then the final day of the 70th week and then the corresponding trailing days afterwards so yes we should know those dates and that's why robert van Kampen can say with a certain amount of um of 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 surety that these events will take place exactly blah 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 and yet he's not date setting he's simply doing what the bible already did for us which is uh clocking off the events once the seventh week begins then we have the time frame within the middle of the second week we don't know when the rapture is going to take place but you know as far as the book ends and uh, those are the events yes we can know well, let's close our study down by reading the summary real quick um in summary this is what robert van Campen has to say the ultimate yom kippur for the nation of israel will be on the last day of the seventh week when the israelites have made quote an end of sin end quote when they have made quote atonement for their iniquity end quote right that's quoting from daniel the ultimate Sukkot will occur five days later, two days after the nation of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, two days after the national salvation of Israel, as Christ and his redeemed people ascend Mount Zion, singing Psalm 118, praising God for their deliverance from tribulation and their salvation. Then, Robert Van Kampen reminds us in the summary, 75 days following the final Yom Kippur and 70 days after the final Sukkot, a restored and redeemed Israel will celebrate the ultimate and final Hanukkah when the glory of Christ returns to the temple, after which Christ's millennial rule over the physical kingdom of God upon earth will begin. And he goes on to confess that, I am convinced that when Christ returns, he not only will fulfill the ultimate meaning and significance of those three festivals, but 
He will also fulfill them chronologically to the exact day and hour in precisely the same manner that Christ became the Passover lamb on the exact day the Passover feast was celebrated by Israel as first coming. So let me pause and interject. Are you catching the, the impact of what he's saying? If ancient Israel of old of the first century would have been studying the feasts like they should have been instead of studying the Talmud like they were so enthralled with, right? Studying the words of men instead of studying the words of God. If they would have been paying attention to the significance of the feasts instead of just kind of superficially participating in them, paying lip service to God instead of giving their hearts fully to God like they were commanded to do, then they wouldn't have missed the visitation of their Messiah the first time he came. They would have understood that the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world is this one who spoke of his redemption through his blood, of the forgiveness that was offered by believing in him and trusting in his name. They wouldn't have missed the fact that he was the true bread come down from heaven and that he was the one that his father sent to be the propitiation, to be the atonement, to be the Lamb of God, um, to be that... Um, that final sacrifice, the propitiation, the, the substitutionary atonement, they wouldn't have missed it. But instead, they were blinded, and so they missed it. But notice, this doesn't change the fact that Yeshua fulfilled those events on the exact days. So, it wouldn't have been wrong for them, to, for those who were watching, to say, we know we know when this should happen. We might not know which year it will happen, but we know on the day, on the uh, around the, on the according to the calendar, that it should happen along these time frames. In fact, Yeshua, going within that same pattern, when after he had uh, been resurrected, he told the disciples, "Don't um, forget to to hang around, to stay in Jerusalem." Because in a short time period, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And it was Pentecost that he was referring to. So he gave them that exact date as well. So it's with that that we don't need to shy away from knowing the exact dates and times of some of what's happening. Yes, the rapture is unknown, and, and Robert Van Kemp is going to talk about that here in a moment. But all, many of the other events, they should not really be completely mysterious to us. So, here's what Robert Van Campen has to say. The significance is clear, and we're, and we're drawing our study to a close with this. We cannot know in advance the exact day or hour that Christ will cut short the great persecution by Antichrist when he comes to rescue his church and destroy the earth's wicked. Right. So, going back to... Um, that uh, chart that you see on your screen here. We've got the covenant made at the far left of your screen, which is the beginning of the 70th week, which corresponds to the beginning of sorrows that Yeshua talked about in Matthew chapter 24. And then with the arrow pointing down at the midpoint of the week, we've got the covenant broken and the abomination of desolation that that's takes place. That's exactly three and a half prophetic years from the beginning of the 70th week when the covenant is made we can know that time frame right don't shy away from that yeshua told us when these events would occur would occur and daniel already gave us the days so we know this and then we've got satan's wrath being poured out during the great tribulation but then notice the arrow pointing upwards about three quarters of the way into this 70th week the seven year slice of time the pre-wrath rapture is the event that we cannot know the exact day or the hour but we'll know the season so we'll have a kind of a general sense of the nearness of christ's return plus we've got as you can see on the bottom of the chart here we've got the seals the trumpets and the bowls which 
this is not in um um this is not in agreement with exactly what Robert Ben Campen teaches, but uh, because he believes that the seals are the entire 70th week, well, the trumpets wouldn't be the entire 70th week, and the bowls certainly wouldn't be in the entire 70th week. Uh, the trumpets uh, and the bowls would be more uh, during the day of the Lord and things like that. But the um, the point I'm trying to highlight is that the pre-wrath rapture is what cuts short the Great Tribulation and introduces the day of the Lord. So going back to... Um, uh, Robert Van Campen, uh, oops, didn't mean to look at that chart. Uh, going back to Robert Van Campen's um, um, epilogue here, um, he talks about how that uh, the significance is clear. We can't know in advance the exact day or the hour that Christ will cut short the great per persecution, but um, he his he's going to come and rescue his church and destroy the earth's wicked. So that's the rapture itself and the pouring out of the, the beginning of the pouring out of the, of the wrath of God at the of the uh, the day of the Lord. We cannot know in advance the year in which the covenant of death will be signed, initiating the 70th week. But, he says, this author believes that to the degree that it's possible to know when Yom Kippur will be celebrated by Israel seven years in the future, which we can, because we can look at a calendar, a good indication of when the covenant will be signed in the current year can be determined. Christ tells us that we should learn from the parable of the fig tree. So listen very carefully. When the branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near, right? Matthew 24, 32. Because all the events necessary to initiate the 70th week are now complete, except for the alignment of three erring nations with a powerful leader, every Christian should be aware that the 70th week could begin practically overnight. To that end, if my assumption is correct, Robert Van Kempchen says, I believe we can determine to some degree in advance what time of the year the covenant will be signed in any given year. So listen carefully. In other words, we know that the 70th week of Daniel is a week of prophetic years, that is seven years, consisting of 360 days each, totaling 2,520 days. How do we know this? Because Daniel told us. And also the entire Old Testament shows us that this is the pattern of the yearly cycle for Israel. We know the uh, covenant of death will be signed on the first day of that seven-year period. And we say signed, we're talking about some treaty that, according to the Hebrew of Daniel chapter 9, this could be a treaty that's already on the book, so the Antichrist simply strengthens it, he confirms it. The original Hebrew word could refer to something that's already in existence, but he just puts his stamp of approval and gives his endorsement to it and causes it to spring into effect, right? It causes it to become alive, to be enacted, or or um, the Hebrew could be, in fact, referring to something brand new that gets signed into law uh, that was never before on the book. So e either one works, but they both fit what Robert Van Camp is trying to talk about. So he talks about how that we know this covenant of death will be signed. That's all he's talking about, the signing of some some um, treaty that's either on the books or it's brand new. But it'll on the first day of that 70 period, and if, in, if indeed our assumptions are accurate, it will end 2,519 days later on Yom Kippur. With that little bit of knowledge, he says, we can also determine what day Yom Kippur will be celebrated for any given year in the future from official Jewish sources that give the future date set for Yom Kippur. Right? You can actually look at a calendar and see when Yom Kippur is going to occur at any time of the year. So that's not a secret either. He goes on to say that once that date for Yom Kippur is determined, we can work back from this date 
to determine the exact date the covenant of death would need to be signed in any given seven years in advance. You guys following what he's saying here? So he is trying to say that we can, to some degrees, to some degree, set a date for the beginning of the seventh week, but we might not know when or what year it should happen. But he's saying that given all those details, let's let him finish. Suffice it to say, Yom Kippur normally falls in late September or early October. And for that reason, mathematically, the covenant, right, the covenant of death, would be signed in late October or early mid-November of any given year. Well, guess what? At the time of this recording, it's still September. That means we could still see the 70th week commence this year. You guys following along with me? Um, now, um, Yom Kippur is like right around the corner. And so really, if it's going to happen, it needs to happen pretty soon. But um, uh, in other words, it needs to correspond uh, closely around the, this time of the year. But we don't know. doesn't seem like it. I mean, a lot's, a lot's happening in Israel in, in any given year. But have you ever noticed that things seem to heat up in Israel around the fall festival times? There's this, this, this spiritual um, um, uh, significance to the fall fest festivals, obviously, because God designed it that way. And so I think Satan is aware of that since he himself is a spirit. And there is a kind of a stirring uh, around this time of year, a, a special kind of... Um, of awareness uh, both in the um, spiritual realm as well as in the natural realm that uh, things are happening uh, in Israel around the fall festivals. So just kind of watch what happens uh, near this uh, around this time of year in Israel. Just watch the news and just kind of get a sense of, of this could be the time, not just when Yeshua returns, but it could and should be, according to Robert Van Camp, in a time when the, um, uh, the seventh week kicks off. And then, of course, Yeshua's return would be like three and a half or maybe four years after that, something like that. So he says, suffice to say, Yom Kippur normally falls in late September, early October. And for that reason, mathematically, the covenant would be signed in late October or early to mid-November of any given year. In other words, watch the activity of Israel, especially during the fall season, just like I mentioned. If the covenant is going to be signed in any given year, that is the time of year in which the covenant, in this writer's opinion, will be signed. And I'm going to have to agree with Robert Van Campen on this one. I think this is a very good hypothesis, a very good um, um, postulation. I think it has a lot of traction, as Pastor Mark McCullen of The Harvest would often say, that it has a lot of traction. There's some good evidence based on the biblical timing and the biblical feasts and, and things like that. We're not. I'm not being dogmatic. Um, and I don't think Robert Van Campen is either, but um, I think there's a lot that could be gleaned from this particular um, perspective that we're um, entertaining at this point in time. He, he concludes by saying, what year? I have no idea. Right? This was written over 20 years ago. I have no idea, but this one thing I do know, Robert Van Campen says, everything that scripture says should be in place before these things can occur other than the public debut of antichrist incognito is already in place for the first time in almost 2000 years and for that part i also agree um other than the the the, the, um, the three nation coalition that needs to be formed for that reason as never before the true church should be alert and watchful and then he's got some closing remarks do i want to read those um, no, that's, that's a little farther than I want to read. So let's 
park it right there. So that's going to do it for this special edition of our um, eschatology study as relates to the significance of the fall feasts and the timing of the return of our Lord Yeshua to planet Earth and his establishing of his um, final um, of his thousand year kingdom here on planet earth so let's be watchful let's be mindful of the times we don't know exactly when but yeshua told us you can know the season learn the parable from the fig tree right so even paul himself mentioned in the in the thessalonian letters that the world in lar at large is in the dark they're not children of light they are children of the darkness and so for, for that reason the return of Yeshua will happen like a thief in the night. And so, we are not children of the darkness. We're not children of the dark because Yeshua has poured his light into our hearts and into our lives. And so, for that reason, because of the light that has been shined into our hearts, we can have a sense of the urgency and the expectancy of our Lord's return. And we can uh, anticipate, with great anticipation, we can anticipate uh, the season of his return. And for that reason, let's be ready. Right? Let's be prayed up. Let's um, be about our Father's business. Let's um, ha be circumspect, not as fools, but as wise, uh, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Let's close in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I am thankful for the opportunity to share my thoughts with the students. Um, I pray that you'll continue to draw us close to you by your Holy Spirit. Raise us up and give us an awareness of your presence in our lives. Help us to be witnesses to those around us who are still in darkness. They don't know that you're returning soon. They don't know that salvation has already been poured out and been made available by the atoning work of your blood on the cross and that they can call upon the name of the Lord for salvation. Give them a sense of their um, of their utter bankruptcy outside of a relationship with God. Help them be aware of the darkness and the blindness that that is uh, of covering their eyes, so that they can call out for salvation in Messiah Yeshua's name. Thank you, Lord, that you are raising us up as a people, declaring your truths during these last days. We know that so many will fall prey to the Antichrist's lies during these final days. They will be uh, victims of the great deception that is going to befall planet Earth. And so for that reason, Lord, you're going to pour out judgment during your day of the Lord's wrath on that wicked slice of humanity who refuses to embrace the gospel of your son, Yeshua. But thank you, Lord, that you are also at the same time bringing this um righteous remnant to maturity and filling us with the power and expectation of your return and giving us a resolve so that we will not yield to the mark of the beast we will not give in to his to, to and take his name or as set up that statue um, and worship and bow down we will not do that by your power and by your grace we will stand firm and declare your truths so uh thank you lord for the study thank you for those who are tuned in lie in the live study bless them and, and protect them and provide for them and bless those who will watch the video after the fact and listen to the, the podcast and i'll be careful lord to give the praise and the glory of Hashem yeshua Oh, man.